Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Romans chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. It is his teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not pay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In view of God's mercy, we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. In view of the fact that we've seen love so amazing and so divine, may we give our lives, our whole lives, our everything to you, Lord. And we pray that we would be motivated to do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit down. I'd love to continue the welcome that Joe has already given to you and welcome you most warmly. I wish you a very happy new year. We are indeed carrying on looking through the book of Romans. Two things you might like to do. One would be to dig out your Bible again, turn to page 1139. The other thing that you might find useful is to find the handout so you can see where we're going. And while you're doing that, I'm going to ask if anybody's near a light switch, if they could switch the lights on here, that would really help me to be able to see a little bit better, which would help. Ah, fantastic. Ah, that's what you look like. Great. Uh, in the last few days, the radio phoning programmes have been uh, full of New Year's resolutions. You've probably heard them. Uh, it's all the predictable stuff of getting fit and losing weight and, and stopping drinking for the whole of January. Apparently, that's a fairly big thing. And uh, to spend less time at the office, all that sort of thing. I'm going to spend less time at the office this year. Um, in the last few years, I, I haven't tended to make any really significant New Year's resolutions Uh, Because, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, because as a Christian, I have in the Bible a very clear direction for life. And so, having been a Christian now for quite a few years, at the beginning of the new year, I'm not going to suddenly think of one new big thing that I really should be doing. And I guess that's true for for all of us. Um, What I do tend to do, though, is kind of reassess how I'm doing as a Christian, now, you can do that any time of the year. You can do that any day of the year. It's great to do it any time. Uh, but it's not a bad thing to do at the beginning uh, of the year. And to recommit myself to a life of wholehearted service to Jesus Christ. That's always a good thing to do. Now, that actually is what we see in Romans chapter 12, uh, at least in the first couple of verses. Uh, a life of wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 12 verse 1. In view of everything that Paul has written so far, the first 11 chapters, therefore, he says, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, that is a great thing for the new year, being committed to offer our bodies as our whole lives to a life of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, the thing about New Year's resolutions is they tend to peter out. January the 2nd is the day when it's easier to break a promise than it is to break a habit. How many people take out gym membership at the beginning of of the year, never to use it beyond January? Of course, there are all sorts of reasons why we don't keep our New Year's resolutions going, but often the problem is motivation. On January the 1st, we, we muster up a bit of enthusiasm for whatever it is, but as soon as it gets hard, we give up. Well, look, this commitment to a wholly devoted life to Christ should not go the same way as other other resolutions, not just because we want to try harder, but because in these first two verses, we're given all the motivation we need to live this, not just for the rest of this year, but for the rest of our lives. So we come to the first point, if you're uh, following on the handout. Be motivated by the gospel. Again, verse one, I urge you 
in view of God's mercy. I don't know about you, I'm always impressed when I meet men and women well into their retirement who are as keen to serve Jesus as they ever were. I, uh, I tend to, I don't know why I do this, but I, I enjoy doing it. I, I, I give uh, all the previous vicars that I've worked for uh, in the last three jobs, I give them a call at Christmas. I call them other times of the year, but I always call them at Christmas. And, uh, and I love doing that. They're, they're all now retired. And all of them are still going with the Lord Jesus. Uh, David Wheaton, uh, Richard Buse, um, and, uh, and Wallace Ben. Um, and they all have the same enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus they had when I worked for them. It is wonderful to see. Now, I long to be like that. I don't know whether you long to be like that. At verse one gives me all the motivation I should ever need for wholehearted Christian living. And it is God's mercy toward me. God's mercy, do you see it there in verse one, is the motivation for the Christian life. And Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of this letter showing us the astonishing mercy of God. Now, I guess most of you here were here most of last term. As we studied those first 11 chapters, we read of the mercy of a righteous God who rather than condemn us, miserable sinners as we are, rather than condemn us, condemn us to eternity in hell, sent his own dear son to suffer hell on a cross. The mercy of God that saw him restraining his hand of judgment and in Christ taking the punishment that we deserve upon himself. The mercy of God that saw him willing to suffer at the hands of sinful men so that we, the guilty ones, could go free. And not just go free, but give me eternity with him. It is to the mercies of God that Paul appeals in verse 1. And when I'm overwhelmed by God's mercy, then I will give myself in total commitment to Christ. The mercy of God is amazing. Problem is, so often I don't think that God's response to me is merciful. I think it's what I deserve. Not mercy, but my right. Of course God has saved me. See, the world we, leave, we, we, we live in leaves us with a very high opinion of ourselves. Listen to the ads on the television. They're always telling you how fantastic you are. L'Oreal tells you to pamper yourself with their beauty products because you're worth it. Thompson Holidays, the number one tour operator in Britain, tells you to look after number one by letting number one look after you. And Booper tells you to take care of your health by buying their health insurance because you're amazing. Now, if you keep hearing that, you're going to think pretty highly of yourself. You're number one. You're amazing. You're worth it. If I believe that, then the gospel will have no real impact on me. If I believe that, I'll be thinking to myself, of course Jesus came to die for me to rescue me from hell because I'm worth it, because I'm amazing. (laughs) Why wouldn't he do that for me? So notice how the church in Britain is reluctant to tell us we are sinners. It's not something that's preached very often these days because that is so countercultural. We don't want to hear that. We think we're wonderful. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. But when we stop preaching sin, do you see that's what we saw in the first three chapters of, of Romans? When we stop preaching sin, we stop being amazed by the mercy and grace of God. So one large church in central London has changed the words of the hymn Amazing Grace. So they they sing these words now. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves someone like me. You know how the, the song actually goes? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Not a wretch, but someone. As soon as you believe that you're not so bad, then grace is not amazing anymore. And while we believe that we're worth it, 
We'll not be overwhelmed by the mercies of God anymore. But remember again how Paul summarised the human condition. Come back with me to Romans chapter 3. Keep something in, um, in Romans 12 and come back with me to Romans chapter 3, page 1133. See, as you're finding this page, some of you may have been thinking, why did we spend so much time at the beginning of last term thinking about how sinful we are? It's, this is the point, until we get that, we're not overwhelmed by the mercy of God. So I'm going to remind us of what we saw last time, because until we get that, we won't really understand Romans 12. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become worthless. Worthless, not worth it. We're worthless because we've turned away from the living God. And until we grasp that, we will not be overwhelmed by the mercy of God. And until we are overwhelmed by the mercy of God, we don't stand a chance of presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Listen to John Calvin. I've put it on the handout for us. Men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. Listen to Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who to him death pursued, Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. God's mercy. That is the motivation for living a life of total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're back in Romans chapter 12. So here's the question. Are you gripped, gripped by the mercies of God If we're not, we will never be sold out for Christ. What is your Christian life built on? The fear of judgment, a guilty conscience, a desire for acceptance or personal achievement or duty or pleasing your family or the mercy of God? The genuine Christian life flows out of being overwhelmed by God's mercy. The genuine Christian life flows from a grateful heart. And that gratitude comes as we look at the cross. And that is why it is so desperately sad to meet Christians who, as the years pass, no longer delight to hear of Christ's death. Sadly, there'll be some here this evening that as I spoke of the rescue right now, they glazed over. Oh, I've heard it all before. It's not new. I want to graduate to something more sophisticated, something more spiritual. Well, look, we never move on from the cross in the Christian life. Be motivated by the gospel. Secondly, uh, on the handout, be worshipping by offering yourself. Again, verse one, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul uses the language of the temple here. Notice the words in verse one, offer, sacrifice, holy, acceptable. Uh, They might be words that we've read before, but they are all technical words from the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the language of the temple, the obedient Jew would offer a lamb as a sacrifice, a lamb that is holy without blemish, and that was acceptable to God. 
So as we come to the New Testament, we're told, don't bring a sacrifice, but be one. Verse one, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, please, we mustn't get confused here. Basically, there are two types of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Again, I put them on the bottom of page one on the handout. There is firstly a guilt offering, a sacrifice that acted as a substitute taking the penalty for our sin. And secondly, there is a thank offering. Now, all the guilt offerings in the Old Testament were pointing towards Jesus, the one who would be the one perfect sacrifice, our substitute, dying in our place. It is Jesus' death and his death alone that puts me right with God. It's at the cross that I see the mercies of God. However, once that sacrifice was made, that guilt offering was made, once we are put right with God, then as a response to his great mercy, we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We are to be a thank offering. And that's what verse one is pointing to, this thank offering, where the people of God would freely offer an unblemished animal to thank God for his kindness to them. That's the offering we have here in verse one. We are to be a thank offering. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you've done for me in view of God's mercy, verse one, in view of your great kindness and grace in rescuing me in the death of Christ. I now want to give myself back to you just as a thank offering. Not as a way of getting right with you, but purely as a response to all that you've done for me. End of verse one, this is your spiritual, or better in the NIV footnote, this is your reasonable act of worship. There is only one reasonable response to the gospel and that is for us to give our whole lives to God. We've just sung it. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's the only reasonable response. Now that's the point of the phrase there in verse one, to offer your bodies. It is your whole selves, our whole lives we are to offer. We mustn't fool ourselves into thinking an hour on, 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 on a Sunday at church in some ways an acceptable offering to God. Now, actually, I don't think most people here do think that. Uh, for most people here, you, you know, of course, that um, it, uh, 24-7 is what's, what's demanded of you, what's expected of you. But while we know that, I was always struck by a former colleague of mine She would often say, human beings have an extraordinary ability to compartmentalise life. So although we know we are to give the whole of our lives to God, we keep some areas of life as no-go areas for Christ. A friend of mine who who is a builder told me how some years ago he did some work for a member of the church he was uh, was part of. And at the end of the job uh, that he'd done... Uh, the person who was a, a committed Christian said, let me pay you in cash so that we can avoid the VAT. It's just a little example of a no-go area. The bank balance. Jesus, I'll live for you until it affects my finances. Uh, some years ago now, I led a weekend away for a church on being a Christian at work. Uh, one guy who was there uh, was on the PCC of the church that he was uh, uh, part of. Uh, he was uh, a member of a home group. He attended a Bible-believing church. He had a a, a personal testimony. He could tell you when he became a Christian. But on that weekend away, he told me that he'd worked in the same office for 30 years and no one knew he was a Christian. 
Amazing how we can compartmentalise life. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I'll not tell people at work that I'm a Christian. I don't want my career to be affected. People have this, and I have it, this remarkable, extraordinary ability to compartmentalise life, to have no-go areas, areas where I'll not let Jesus go there. But in view of God's mercy, verse 1, we are to offer our bodies, our whole lives, as living sacrifices. So this, this verse asks, where are your no-go areas? Where are you not offering your body as a living sacrifice? Where is it? Money, career, sex, leisure, family, holidays, friendships? Where's the no-go area for you? Where are you not being a living sacrifice? As one wag said, the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. That's our problem, isn't it? Well, tonight, crawl back on. Be motivated by the gospel. Be worshipping by offering yourselves. And then over the page... The third point, be supported by other Christians. Now look, this is a big call, the stuff we've been thinking about so far. Even when we are motivated by the mercies of God, we will find it hard to be worshipping as we should in every area of life all the time. Of course we find out. It's exactly why we need the cross of Christ, because we can't live this way fully all the time. And so we need to be supporting one another in this. And that is why I love verse 1. Now, it doesn't really come out clear in the NIV, but in the ESV, it says this in verse 1. Offer your bodies, plural, as a singular living sacrifice. That's great. You see, Paul is writing to a church family, and he's saying, collectively, together, be one sacrifice. Paul is not expecting us to do this on our own. Together as the people of God, a church family, should, we should all offer our bodies as one living sacrifice. That's a great encouragement to me when I see that happening. In this last term, as we've been studying the Passion to Witness DVDs in our small groups, a number of people through the term have come up to me and said how they plan to respond to the particular challenges of one of the DVDs. And you know, every time they've come and told me that, I've been encouraged to do the same. It's spurred me on to do the same. I'm so encouraged by the church family here. When you tell me of conversations you've had to share, to, in sharing your faith, I'm thinking, yeah, I've got to get on with that more. It's great when we do it together, isn't it? When we're in it together, it's so much easier to live it. We need each other in this. Why it's so good to meet on a Sunday. So let me encourage you, if you're sitting light in your commitment to the church family here, if you only turn up when it suits you, If you come and go, if you won't commit to a small group or to your small group family or whatever it is, will you change that attitude at the beginning of this year? This would be a great way to say, I'm going to be committed to you, you're going to be committed to me. Together we can really do this. We we, we can spur each other on to be a living sacrifice. Perhaps over coffee tonight, talk about how you're going to be more committed to Christ. And as you do that, you will spur others on. We need each other to live out the Christian life. Be motivated by the gospel, be worshipping by offering yourselves, be supported by other Christians. And and fourthly, again on the handout there, be transformed by renewing your mind. Verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Bad habits are very difficult to break. You don't just wake up one morning and think, oh, bad habit's gone. Great, it'd be good, wouldn't it? Just like you don't wake up and think, oh, I'm fit. 
It'd be great if that was the case, wouldn't it? It never happened to me anyway. Bad habits are remarkably difficult to break. That's why we find it so hard to break a habit at the beginning of a new year. But if we're going to live a life of total commitment to Christ, there is one addictive habit that we must be on a lifetime's quest to break. And that is the habit of conforming to the pattern of this world. For the pattern of this world is a pattern that, like a whirlpool, drags us down. With remarkable force, it drags us down and down and down and away from our God. Now, Paul has already laid out what the pattern of this world is. We don't have to guess. It's in Romans chapter 1. So again, uh, put something uh, in in Romans 12 and come back with me to Romans chapter 1. We did look at this uh, a few weeks back when we were looking at Romans 1. But just to remind us, the pattern of this world, page 1129. Here we'll see the pattern of this world, and then we'll go back to Romans 12. Chapter 1, verse 23. Look at the pattern. Chapter 1, verse 23. We exchange the glory of God for images, and then we worship those images. And as a result, verse 24, God gives us over to ungodly living. And as we live ungodly lives, the pattern begins again. Verse 25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 25, we worship created things. And for this reason, verse 26, God gives us over to live ungodly lives. And the pattern continues. Verse 28, we don't acknowledge God. We worship other things. And verse 28, God gives us over to a depraved mind. And verse 29, we live ungodly lives. Do you see the pattern? That's the pattern of this world. A spiral of rejecting the truth about the one true living God, living for other gods, and God giving us over to ungodly living. It just goes on and on. And we've seen that pattern being worked out in Britain in these last 30, 40, 50 years. As a nation, we've given up on the knowledge of God. Church attendance has declined. As a result, we worship other things. Sport, leisure, sex, travel, money, career. And as we've turned to these other things, God has taken his hand of restraining hand off our society and we've plunged into even worse ungodly living, misusing sex and drink and relationships and wealth and so on. And society is gradually fragmenting. That is the pattern of this world. And that's the pattern that we, we, you and I as Christians, will naturally revert to. Now before we return to chapter 12, note that it all begins in the mind. Chapter 1, verse 21. They became futile in their thinking. Chapter 1, verse 22. They claimed to be wise in the mind, but they were fools. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth for a lie. Verse 28. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God in the mind, you see. All begins with the mind. And that is why as we go back to chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To live transformed lives, my mind must be renewed. That's why the Bible is so important for the Christian. Whenever God speaks, he creates, he transforms. Have you noticed that in the Bible? The sermon, the Bible study, or our daily Bible reading None of it should be purely intellectual exercise, at least it shouldn't be. We've only engaged with the Bible properly when it transforms us, when our lives are changed. 
So we need to be Bible people if we're to live wholehearted Christian lives and not be dragged down by the pattern of this world. But as we draw to a close, let me say, beware of two wrong responses to the Bible. One, of course, is to give up studying the Bible seriously. Yeah, you see, I meet Christians who've become bored with the Bible. They wouldn't put it that way, but they're no longer excited by the word of God. They kind of put up with the sermon because we have some great songs. They don't really study the Bible for themselves at home anymore. I meet Christians who excuse themselves from serious and careful study of the Bible by saying, I'm not an intellectual, I'm not an academic, I just have a simple faith. I fear that is an excuse for laziness. I'm not an academic. I'm not an intellectual. But I'm called to put my mind to understanding the word of God. You and I should cherish this book. The pattern of this world begins by wrong thinking, wrong thoughts about God. We should be desperate to keep coming to this book to have our minds renewed because the world's going to keep telling me the wrong things. Going to tell me I'm worth it and I'm wonderful and I'm number one. I've got to keep being told I'm not that good. That's why I need Jesus. That leads me, of course, to the, uh, the second wrong response. There are those who appear to love the Bible, but for them it is no more than intellectual exercise or academic study. They love the nuances in the text. They glory in the well-crafted sermon. They read the Bible for themselves daily, but it doesn't transform their lives. But, verse 2, the Bible renews the mind, so I will think right thoughts, so that I will live a right life. Honestly, if you've been a Christian for a long time, when was the last time the Bible really changed something about the way you think, about the way you live? Really? Four things then, which will set us up for the rest of the book and uh, the, uh, of the rest of the chapter as well. Be motivated by the gospel. Be worshipping by offering yourself. Be supported by other Christians. Be transformed by renewing your mind. And if you do want to go away and think about the rest of the chapter, because next week we're going to do chapter 13, here are two brief paragraphs to help you do some Bible study on your own at home, which I know you'll be desperate to do in view of all that I've said. Uh, First, you'll see it on the bottom of the handout. In the light of verses 1 and 2, verses 3 to 13 tell us how we are to relate to the church family. So verse verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. The gospel ensures that I don't think too highly of myself. The mercy of God humbles me. I'm a guilty sinner. There's no place for pride. I'm no big shakes. And when I think of myself as I should, then I take my right place in the church family, or the body as it's called in verse 4. And in verses 5 to 8, I'll use the gifts I have to build up the body of Christ. And verse 9, I'll love the church family. Verse 10, I'll be devoted to other Christians in brotherly love. And in verse 13, I'll share with God's people who are in need. I'll do all that because the mercy of God has shown me such amazing love. I want to love others. So verses 3 to 13, all about how I relate to the church family in, in the light of the mercy of God. And then second, in the light of verses 1 and 2 in the mercy of God, verses 14 to 21, tell me how to relate to unbelievers. Indeed, how I can break the pattern of this world. Verse 14, I'm to bless those who persecute me. That doesn't happen in the world. 
Verse 16, I'm to live in harmony with others, prepared to associate with people who we consider lower than ourselves. We'll do that when we've understood the mercy of God because God, will he, he's really condescended to, 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 to be involved with me. Well, then I will lower myself, as it were, to be involved with others. Verse 17, I'll not repay evil with evil because God didn't do that with me. And where possible, verse 18, I'll live at peace with others. Verse 19, not taking revenge because God didn't do that with me. Verse, 29, overcome, verse 21, overcoming evil with good because that is exactly what the Lord did. See, all that is motivated by the mercy of God, motivated by how he has treated me. I don't deserve any of his goodness, but he's loved me and so I should love others similarly, whether it's the church family or people outside the church family. So whether you've made a New Year's resolution or not, here is one we should all have all the time. A life of total commitment to Christ. And here in the book of Romans, I have all the motivation I need to live this, not just for a few weeks at the beginning of the year, but for the rest of my days. Let's spur each other on to live this way in 2014 and beyond. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we've sung that when we survey the wondrous cross, it completely transforms us. And so we pray that as we have been doing that uh, this last term, and as we have reviewed that again just now, that it would have a transforming effect on our lives. Please rescue us from going through the motions or you know, doing the kind of evangelical thing of reading the Bible, but it never affecting our lives. Please help us to be afresh today, overwhelmed by your mercy. And may the result be a life that is truly transformed, a life that is attractive to others, a life that glorifies you, a life that really is a life of sacrifice. May that be our spiritual act of worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.